You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. <laughs> Woo, it's been a week, and I know y'all have felt it. Okay, because I have definitely felt it. The first week of February has been bananas. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's what a way to kick off Black History Month. Okay? <laughs> Woo! So much, so much. And I know you all have been following because I gave you all a special edition early this week. I was a man of my word. Um, as you all know now, I am a part of the cover story uh, package that is for New York Magazine which is about the 10-year anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Uh, Not the hashtag, but the movement itself. And it's it's been interesting um, to just experience this journey um, just as a journalist, to be able to be a part of a project this massive. New York Magazine this month um, is reflecting on 10 years of Black Lives Matter, which they say was started... Um, following the death of Trayvon Martin, who was a 17-year-old teen who was murdered by uh, George Zimmerman. And this was um, in 2012 in February uh, when this happened. And this month um, is a commemoration of that tragedy and what has happened since. The piece that I did in particular was about Campaign Zero, the police reform organization that was founded in 2015 by um, D. Ray McKesson, who's the man in the purple, the, the blue vest, <laughs> purple vest, Floyd's blue. Um, Janetta Elsie, who was the special guest um, in the special edition episode that um, is before this, the bonus episode. So check that out to get more context. Brittany Packnett Cunningham and Samuel Seguingue. So the four of them co-founded Campaign Zero. And now Brittany has left. Um, Janetta left after um, many years, you know, going on and off between the organization. And Sam has left. Uh, the three of them are no longer apart. And D-Ray is now the sole leader and now the executive director of this nonprofit that is now worth $40 million, over $40 million. And there's been so much drama. Um, if you listen to the previous episode, I'm just going to keep sh- plugging that because I don't want to use this episode to talk about all of the stuff in depth. Um, I'm actually going to, fun fact, be on a podcast coming up soon um, that is actually going to interview me about that story and about the entire experience. So I'm going to see say some some insight there. But when that episode comes out, I can't wait for you all to listen to it. And we'll talk about it and things. But I just want to say that it has been a week and there's been so much. And when we recorded that episode, we recorded it on on that Monday, um, January 31st, the day the story dropped to get instant reactions from Janetta and just, you know, since. But as you all know, so much has happened since the story has come out. And that's what I'll be talking about a little bit today. Um, But before I get into all of that, I want to just start off with some updates. So it is... Black History Month, and let me just say that to all of these organizations that have been asking me to come speak and give seminars and all this stuff, unpaid, that's why your emails are not being answered. Um, that's why you're just being left unread. 
black people are not your data mine to abstract valuable information, experiences, and insight from in February and not pay. I am not going to be treated. My ancestors did not go through what they went through being enslaved for you all to now try to recreate that over 400 years later. It's not happening. So no, I am not doing any of your pay, unpaid, I'm sorry, your unpaid speaking engagements, lectures, and stuff for your white employees about diversity, equity, inclusion at a, at a month like this. You should know better, right? You want to make black history? Make black history by making black history in your companies. Promoting black people, hiring more black people, promoting them, giving them livable wages, if not better, better wages, right? Um, treating them like the geniuses that they are, that you continue to lean on for advice and insight without properly giving them the pay, the respect, or the title that reflects that. Like, that's what you can do. If you want to contribute to Black History Month, make Black history in your own companies and organizations. We could start there. Um, and that's just something that I've just been thinking about lately because there's all these stories that's been coming out lately about you know, there's always stories, right, of, of racism and, and, and stuff. I was reading, I was seeing a story in CBS3 about this black, um, you know, senior level manager who received an award saying he was the whitest black guy at the, at the, in the group or the company or something of that nature. Um, and this story, this is a true story. This black man received this. Now, the crazy thing is that he thought it was flattering. Just going to leave that there for you all to reflect on that. But an award was given him several years ago. But the employees, the black employees who since worked for him, saw this award in his office and it made them uncomfortable to the point where a city council member saw it. Now, this is not in Philadelphia. This is in the outskirts. But someone that saw it and then a city council person shared it and it's now created some some chatter and some buzz. Meanwhile, this is all happening while school districts across this country are banning books by Toni Morrison and other great black scholars and academics. Um, th there's a lot of things happening right now um, that does not reflect it. Like I, any of these libraries who are banning books um, from black writers about race and critical race theory, how do you celebrate Black History Month? Because what books are you promoting? Because you just can't just promote a bunch of you know, MLK books because those books are addressed and talk about race as well. So it's it's half ass, and so I I think that is something that I'm I'm getting tired of. Amplify supporting Black organizations and Black people with money, opportunity, and and, and elevation. Like stop hogging the mic. Do that. Do that. Those are the ways. Since everybody wants to say, how do we celebrate Black History Month? Promote a Black person in your company that's been doing the work for a long time. Give people decent living salaries. You know, treat people with humanity and dignity and respect and stop using them as a dated talking point. All I'm saying is, is, is I just need to see more. And the fact that people would even ask me to just come and speak. And I'm not saying speaking to children or kids. You know, I love the kids. Okay. I, will, I always volunteer my time for free, right? For children. Children. Young adults, right? People who don't have the means and equity, right? Public schools, absolutely. Private schools, ha, 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 funny, right? There's a difference. And I think that too often, there's almost like a guilt trap, right? 
that if you was a black person, do not speak at that, that DEI event, that, you know, your, your, your ideas or something may not impact them or help them. But then you have to go back and recognize that you are a person and you're not a robot and that you deserve to be paid equitably because listen, all of these other people who have really important things to say that is a value, get paid a value. But it seems like LGBTQI people, women and, 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 and black and brown people don't, you know, it's just almost like a given. Like, I think it's so funny that there's groups out here saying keynote speaker, keynote speaker. How do you tell someone they're a keynote for something if they're not paying them? How do you give a keynote with no proper support or resources for a, for a corporation? We're talking corporations here, y'all. I'm not talking about a public school that 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 whose school district won't allow them to have a nurse and they have to pay out their own pocket for school supplies. I'm talking about Fortune 500 companies. I'm talking about companies that have multiple VPs that are getting six figures and they're looking at you like it is a you should be happy that they're reaching out to you to add your invo in input. And so I've had to be in situations where I've had to say, I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that because I know that there are people sitting on that panel or in that group that's getting compensated. And you're 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 telling me that I'm going to be the 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 life of the party or that I'm a I'm in a critical role, but I'm not seeing anything that reflects that. So I have declined offers, as anybody should, and I and I hope many of you are because it's not like you're turning down the opportunity that's going to keep the lights on or open up new endeavors. People will exploit you. They they, they do. Companies do exploit. They, this is how American capitalism works, and so. I've realized that my time is important and that the time that I would spend educating somebody or wrestling with tough questions from white people about race in 2022, I could be at home relaxing or having happy hour with a bestie or being with my husband. I could be doing a lot of other things. That, that's how I feel. So there's a lot of feelings, you know, that Black History Month is showing people still don't get. And I just hope that they, whoever listens to this podcast, let, let your coworkers know, let your friends know, let your, your, your corporate friends know that when they're thinking about how to celebrate Black History Month, that either they are paying the speakers that they're trying to bring to these events or B, making sure that they are trying to change the way that Black people are being treated or being appreciated or being um, arguably handled in their news in their newsrooms or their workplaces and everywhere else. Let's do that. Let's let's do that. That's how you can make history easily. So, outside of Black History Month, <laughs> because it has been interesting. It's Aquarius season, and I have a lot of Aquariuses in my life. Um, you know, my besties, like I have two besties back-to-back, -back, my friend Manny and Sharon, both of them, their birthdays are back-to-back, -back, like days, like February 5th, February 6th. Um, my husband's birthday is on the 17th. Our anniversary is on the 13th. We got a lot of things going on, okay? I, our anniversary as a couple will be eight years. We'll be, we'll be eight years this year. 
Eight years. Time flies when you're having fun. This year will also be the eighth year anniversary of me graduating from Penn. So I am definitely in the, no longer am I the, I guess in two years I'll be, you know, officially like no longer part of the young alumni circle. <laughs> so they're going to be wanting me to give money, money. Um, but yeah, it's Aquarius season. Lots of birthdays coming up. Lots of celebration. It's the shortest month of the year, but it's definitely adventurous. I'm just, I'm just, you know, putting myself through. Um, as far as my Omicron updates and just COVID, I don't know, y'all. I mean, I, I see, here I go. Here I go. Because remember, I was like this in the summer last season, season one. Remember, in the summertime, I was this way. For loyal listeners, you know what I'm talking about. I'm like, is COVID over? Like, it's not over. Let me, full disclaimer, it's not over. So don't even try to get that sound bite. But it's just, I don't know. We're so caught up in the weather now, the snow. Like, in Philly, it's been snowing crazy. Uh, the snow is finally melting. Oh, my God. I hate, that's the one thing I don't like about snow days. Like, it's fun to have a snow day when you, you know, you're in the house and you all warm and it's all toasty and it's cute and oh, so romantic. <laughs> but I, I, I enjoy the snow day on that, right? It feels like you're in a snow globe. It's so cute. And then when, like, the snowing stops and it's time to get out the house, it's like so much fucking snow. I know. Like, I don't know why I'm acting like this is not a, a, ro- a routine annual thing. It's a, Clearly, it happens every season. In Philadelphia. Like, I grew up in Houston. So, excuse me for just still having a culture shock. I was born in Chicago. So, literally, I came out of a damn snowbed. But, like, and wind, too. But then I come to Houston, which was most of my upbringing. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're complaining about, oh, it's 30 degrees. And I'm like, yeah, is there snow? No, no, no snow. Okay, okay. Well, pipe down. <laughs> but, like, that's a you know it's every year it still gets me with Philly though with the snow situation sometimes it it, it it's not as crazy but now it is it, it definitely we got that snow we kept begging it for and it's it was here here and it was annoying because I didn't want to change shoes or boots I had a certain style going on it was just fucking up my fashion mindset like the slush and all that ugh oh I hated it I hated it and I also feel like you find out how good your shoes really are when you hit the snow because when your feet hit that slush or whatever, if your shoes are still wet and just sticky wet, it's like, this is not a protector shoe. Like I shouldn't be having to feel, I don't, I shouldn't be feeling the water of the melted snow slipping through, you know? So these shoes were not built for this. Clearly they weren't, you know, I had a, a shoe that was almost ruined, but it wasn't, thank God, um, that got hit by some of the sludge, but it's fine. But I'm just, I'm just happy now to see it. Um, but it, it, you know, that's it. Okay, we got the snow. We're done. And then I hear about Groundhog's Day. I'm like, listen, fuck you, Groundhog. I mean that. We're going to have five, five more weeks of winter, I'm hearing. This is bullshit. I don't know if it's true, though. Do we know this? I mean, is, is Groundhog's Day really true? Let me stop. See, there y'all go. I, I just hope he's wrong. Maybe the Groundhog is wrong because climate change is real. How about that? <laughs> but anyway, I back to I don't know. Like, is it? I, you know, it's so funny because it's like <laughs> I will say the restaurants have been asking for vaccination cards. That I do know. Some people say no. Listen, if you're going to restaurants that are not asking for your vaccination card, that's classes. I'm not going. Well, 
All I got to say is choose your restaurants wisely. I have heard mixed reviews from some people that certain restaurants around town are not checking for vaccination cards, even though they're supposed to. All I'm saying is if you're going to a restaurant that is not, you know, think about that. That ain't classes. I, I, I thought I was going to say something. It's not about price range. I won't make assumptions about, oh, the cheaper restaurants are ask, or not in the summer. No, no, no. That's not the assumption. I think it's more political, Wayne. Like if you was in the Northeast right now or parts of South Philly, I'm hearing that they're, they're not giving a fuck about the cards in certain places. If your restaurant, if, if you go to a restaurant that does not check for your vaccination, you should know that they also didn't check for other people's vaccination, which should make you be concerned about going there to eat. You know, if you're going to go indoors and eat, that's all I'm saying. Um, but it's nice to have the card. Um, people have been getting the, the shot card um, from yours truly. Go to theshotcard.com, put in Ernest Philly in all caps. And you can get a wallet size vaccination card where you can use your phone and pull up the real image of your real card with with the QR code. And it's fabulous. Theshotcard.com. Use the discount code EarnestPhilly. No spaces. um, All caps. And you'll get a discount on that card. It'll come to you between three to five days. It's a Philly owned company that do it. And you should get your, your, your shot card. Um, so yeah, now to the topics and to the conversation I know y'all been waiting for this campaign zero situation. So it has been a bad week for campaign zero. It has been a bad week for D-Ray. Um, if I was a guessing man, I would guess that the sale of blue vests have significantly declined in the past week following the New York magazine story that I wrote about campaign zero, which many have found to be an expose of D-Ray McKesson's leadership style and some of the other dysfunctions that have shaped this $40 million nonprofit. Now, as of the, the time this article, this podcast has been recorded, uh, McKesson has not spoken publicly about the matter. Um, he's been trying to ignore it. You know, he's been retweeting and talking about other things, even though he's been tagged and called out by dozens and dozens of people on social media. The article is on the charts of uh, New York Magazine. People are reading it, sharing it, debating it, talking about it. It is a, a, a hot story. Um, I knew covering this story that it was going to be a big damn deal. Um, I will discuss on another podcast, not this podcast, not my podcast, about some of the other fun facts that are to be revealed about how this story came about. But I will tell you that I didn't wake up thinking to myself, campaign zero. That's not how this happened. And um, now the story's out and it's it's on news shelves uh, and everyone's talking about it and reading it. Now I could be able to breathe again. You know, Tony Tony Braxton, breathe again. You know, I could be able now to to talk about what that experience was like in that journey to get to get to this story. Because I mean, there's things I learned even after the story about the sources and some of the people that I didn't know when I signed up, you know. Um, I didn't know that, you know, I talked to Janetta LZ and I interviewed her, that a lot of, she didn't talk to most media. Um, that it was really exclusive for me to get her to talk on the record, especially about something like this, because she kind of, you know, talked about feeling like she was alienated and disrespected by certain people and 
talked about how some certain stereotypes is being formulated about her um, in the media and by others. And, you know, we just hit it off very well. Um, just listening, you know that about me, y'all, like I'm a listener, you know, I'm someone who listens to sources. Even why I tell you all I love this podcast so much, because this is the time I talk the most really is when I get opportunities to be on podcasts and radio shows and things, because most of the day I'm listening to people. I'm listening to stories and experiences. I'm taking notes. I'm doing research. I'm reading, you know, I tweet, you know, very often, but th- this is the only time I get to really just let out vocally um, in, a, in, a, in a media platform. A lot of times I am often just having to react and reflect and research. But this is an opportunity for me to just really just, you know, let my guard down and just say how I really feel in the most long form, eloquent way verbally. Um I know a lot of you all see my tweets and posts on Instagram and things and say, you know, there must be a story behind this. And there, there, there's plenty of stories behind the stories. Um, one of them is the situation that happened with Simone Sanders. Now, you all saw that tweet that she did, because since this story has come out, there's been major updates. And we're going to talk about that. But one of the major updates, um, you know, is that I've been hearing that there have been people since my story has come out that has cut ties with Campaign Zero. Um, some of those people have gotten in contact with me. There are others that are still um, questioning how long they're going to stay with Campaign Zero since the story has come out. And I've talked to a lot of these people in confidence and many of them are open and curious and potentially interested in uh, possibly doing a story or or trying to seek uh, telling their account. So I'm just taking this all in. And, um, you know, it's a story that I did that is now opened the floodgates for possible more coverage. And there's already been coverage. Um, one big story that came out um, following my initial story that I actually um, put out was that one of the co-founders, Samuel uh, Sienge, has basically um, is basically accusing D. Ray McKesson of copyright infringement so much that he sent him a cease and desist letter um, on Friday. Like it's gotten that serious. Okay, according to his attorney, um, he has accused Campaign Zero in a cease and desist letter uh, that I got. And I wrote the story for the Daily Beast. So if you go to my Instagram, link in bio, follow my Twitter, it's been retweeted. It's on there. The story's out. Um, but basically, um, in a cease and desist letter that um, I obtained, um, they're accusing D-Ray and Campaign Zero of infringing on Mapping Police Violence's trademark and Mr. Singway's copyrights by, among other uh, actions, what can only be termed as hijacking the website. Um, the letter goes on to say that all data analytics layout that was linked to the website through Mr. Singway's Squarespace page and transferring it to a cloud Flare server displaying a copycat version of the website. So to, to make this, to put this all in context, if you've been living in Iraq, if you may have not read my story, pretty much Sam is a statistician, okay? He, he, he's a co-founder of Campaign Zero, but before he joined Campaign Zero, before he co-founded it with Brittany Packnett Cunningham, Janetta LZ, and D. Ray McKesson, he was doing mapping police violence and doing this work around statistics and data. He was working on such data um, in 2014. He was doing it in early 2015, creating mapping police violence, creating a database and all of that. It was that data and his research 
that caught the eye of D-Ray on Twitter, to which D-Ray brought Sam on board to be a part of Campaign Zero, to which his data tech mind savviness is what gave, in my opinion, Campaign Zero the legs to be a unique institution within this whole criminal justice, social justice movement. Here's some things that happened. While this was going on, D-Ray, while D-Ray and Sam was in communication and, you know, Sam was discussing mapping police violence, D-Ray bought the domain, the, the dot-com of mapping police violence. He bought the domain. And Sam was working on it through Squarespace as a public site. He didn't buy the domain. He was using it, all the data, all the database collection, all the analytics. He had that um, there. So when D-Ray bought the domain, what happened was, is that all of what they did was they linked the, they directed the domain to that website. So the domain was directed to mapping, was directed to the mapping police violence Squarespace so that when people put in the website, Sam's Squareface page would show up, but it wouldn't say Squarespace because it didn't have to. It just redirected to the page that he was working off of. A lot of people do that. So, for example, with me, I have a, um, I know friends who have websites um, and they'll operate from Tumblr or from WordPress. But what they do is they get their own domain and then it redirects to that WordPress page they're working off of or their Tumblr page or whatever. So that that's how you do it. As long as the domain is there, you want to keep that but you want to have a good template or another operating place too, because the domain itself does not automatically create your website. And some people will use another system to update and make updates on their site because the domain is just a holding piece. Like you can own a domain for anything, but that doesn't mean you own any of the content. So you can have, let's say a person owns taylorswift.com and Beyonce didn't, I mean, and Taylor Swift did not own it or Beyonce didn't own Beyonce.com. You can own Beyonce.com, but that doesn't mean automatically Beyonce's content is on there if her landing page is not connected to the domain. I hope this makes sense. I'm sounding very nerdy and techie, but I'm trying to make it make sense. So that was happening, right? They were cool. Everything was cool back in 2015. Over the years, everybody was working together. It was cool. The day after my story came out, February 1st, on Tuesday, February 1st, the day after my story came out, my story came out January 31st. Sam says, according to my article and just in general, that D-Ray not only D-Ray cut the website, like he just cut the domain. So the domain, the domain, he took Sam's Squarespace, so it doesn't redirect, the domain does not redirect to Sam. And then there was some copycat site that was in place. The, the page looked similar to what Sam's data research was, except it did not have the exact same coloring and things, but it literally has the same information, the same data and everything else. And at, for, at, at the beginning, it had um, options for people to donate to Campaign Zero on that landing page. So this was what Sam considered retaliation from D-Ray. That's what he's alleging um, in my story is that he looks at this as being retaliatory. So he sees, um, I mean, which in my opinion, I can see that. I can see how it looks, right? No one was having any complaints. But the moment the story drops and the streets are talking, 
Then all of a sudden, you want to you wanna just switch over? So the problem with this situation is that um, Sam is saying this is plagiarism. Like You're taking all this research, all of this stuff that he has done, and you're literally putting it on a new page, and you're cutting people off from his page. But you're going to keep the same information. So it would have been one thing if Mapping Police Vines Domain, right, that D-Ray owns that domain, did not, you know have it right whatever the case is you you put something else there. you put flowers or something else there okay whatever petty but if you own a domain that's your right but for you to then but for you to then create a bootleg version of the same exact information and put it there that's a problem and that's what they're that's what they're arguing about in this story. And in my story, you could click like uh, the, the, the Daily Beast story. So there's a Daily Beast story and there's a New York Magazine. In the Daily Beast story, it's the update. This came out on Friday. You can see in the story, the two websites are hyperlinked. So you can see the compare and contrast of the websites. So you can see like what makes them look different. And I've been looking very carefully at both of them. So I'm like, while I'm talking to you all, I'm looking at the websites. They literally have the same data and it's obvious that like this is not okay like this is not okay they literally have the same data like you know page for page print for print and initially they had the the, the mapping police violence org let me clarify dot org is what D-Ray owns. He owns the .org because it's an organization, not a company. He owns the .org. Um, but, but the thing is, is that Sam actually owns Mapping Police Violence, the 501c3. He created it. It's Mapping Police Violence, Inc., which is what Sam owns, that nonprofit. He's the founder of that. Um, but he does not own that domain. And so D-Ray is basically, and Campaign Zero is basically when you're looking at the information provided, it appears that this organization, referring to Campaign Zero, is has fundraised off of Sam's work, has used this man's research and data and all the work that he's done on it to now try to give people the perception that they're still affiliated. Like Mapping Police Violence as an organization is Sam's. It's not affiliated with Campaign Zero anymore. The only thing that links them is this domain. So they're saying basically that uh, the the attorney representing um, Sam is saying that they have till February 9th, campaign zero has till February 9th to clean this up, to cut their ties, to you know do whatever, or they're going to then pursue a lawsuit. So right now is a cease and desist, but this can now escalate to a lawsuit. So, you know, I'm just saying something, something to think about, something to think about. Mm. So. It's been a week, like I said. Um, I do want to talk about Simone Sanders, though, because a lot of people have asked me about that. So while I was on my journey trying to, 
get people to, uh, you know, understand what's going on. Um, you know, take that time to hear people. Um, Simone Sanders, who is who worked at the White House, who is now, um, how do I describe this? She, for a while, I guess, uh, for for a period of time, you know, she. Mm, there's been a lot. Let me just put it that way. But one of the things that has happened um, in a while was that she pretty much saw this. She saw a tweet I wrote and I was asking as a journalist that if anybody had any uh, questions, concerns um, related to campaigns, if you someone who left, like, please DM me. My DMs are open and I'm, op- I'm open to talking candidly or, you know, confidential in confidence. And that's something that journalists do a lot of times. Uh, if they're looking for someone to talk to for a story or share an experience or any of those type of things, they will open their, you know, their their DMs open and, and things like that. So that's what I did. I, I did that. That was what I did. She shared it and said, this is tacky. And I was kind of like, hmm. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting, you know, like it's interesting to me that all of a sudden, you know, you have these people who, you know, are always talking about keeping it real and and and, and you know, being frank. Like, why would you think this is tacky? So I actually asked her, I said, please expound to which people on Twitter were like, you know, kind of like peeping. And it's true. Like. I always tell people all the time, I'm like, it's, I wanted to know, you know what I'm saying? I wanted to know what the tea was, you know? I wanted to know what, what, what something was about, you know? That's, that's kind of what, you know, that's kind of my energy. But, you know, sometimes I think people miss the mark, right? They don't do the research. They jump out. They make perceptions. Um, they try to, in some ways, bully, um, or they side with a friend without full context and then put egg on their face. Whatever the case was, what was interesting to me about her though was that you know she kind of stepped herself into some stuff, um, and then just you know did never never responded or say anything about what was going on, um, which was interesting. But I think that's one of the things that I find interesting about her is that, you know, you had all these things to say. And then when I said, please expound, you didn't say anything back. And now people don't know what's going on. So, you know, a lot of a lot of people tell themselves, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, tell themselves and say something is tacky and I'm just sitting here wondering to myself, like, what what's going on? So, 
it's it's it was very interesting. Um, you know, people told me that she's cool with D Ray, so that's why she thought she could try to throw a shot. Um, hey, listen, some people, you know, you know, tell themselves in their own way and reveal what you know who they what their politics are, or whatever. I just think that it's just funny to me because there is a there is a particular cult. Or there's various cults on Twitter and in, in groups. Like there is people who are H Hive, you know, the Kamala Harris camp, a cop, cop, you know, you know, Kamala, they're, they're Kamala Harris supporters. And if anybody criticizes Kamala, they're sexist or racist or both, even if they are both um, identify as both. Um, it's a very interesting circle. And I, I just will say this, you know, um, it was just interesting that Simone Sanders of all people would be referring to anything that I do as tacky. I mean, I think it's tacky to work on the campaign of Bernie Sanders and then turn around years later and then work on the sa- on the campaign of Joe Biden and act like you're the same person. I don't know. Is it tacky to be at someone's office not getting the position that you really wanted and sticking there for less than a year in a position you never really wanted to begin with? Only to leave all of that and then go and be some media pundit for MSNBC? Okay. Since we're talking about tacky, I mean, or is it tacky that you on national TV basically made yourself a bodyguard for the president, for white people, white liberals to sit up and, you know, give you brownie points? Only for the fact that that never turned around and gave you the job that you wanted at the White House, even though you was the only person outside of Jill that put yourself in your body in harm's way for a man that may or may not necessarily care much for you, that he didn't put you in his administration. He put you in Harris's, even though you wasn't even pushing for Harris. But... I digress. I just, you know, since we're talking about tacky, I, you know, I just, you know, I, like I said, I want her to expound on what was tacky. Maybe she was talking about D-Ray's organization being tacky, that someone like me has to now reach out to people. I don't know. Because it couldn't be about me giving an opportunity for people working in an unsafe working environment to share their to- their stories. I mean, I know that's. I mean, well, for all the huh, stories that came out of Politico from unidentified sources that were just giving exclusive, intimate details about mismanagement at, you know, the vice president's administrative office. Who was those close sources that went to reporters? And gave reporters the information. I don't know, but I don't think it was tacky for those people to share their thoughts to those reporters who was looking for answers to help tell stories to inform the people what was going on. Since we're talking about tacky, I don't I don't know, you know, but what what were those people in your office, your comms office department, tacky? When they went to reporters, they gave them insight about what was happening in that office with Kamala's team. 
Or was you one of the tacky people that actually made those employees experience a living hell? Or was you going through the hell and you talked to reporters off record or on background? Because it could have been off record. It would have to have been on background. Were you one of those people who did that? Because that would be tacky. Or not. No, it wouldn't be tacky, right? Because it's not tacky for me to do it. And you wouldn't consider what you're doing tacky. So then therefore, why is what I'm doing tacky? Because it involves your friend. And so only the time you speak out about what journalists are doing their jobs, I guess that's tacky. Since we want to talk about tacky. So that's really what I, that's my thoughts on that. I mean, because everybody's been asking me what I thought. And listen, I wasn't going to, I know how, I know how this Twitter works. Okay. Been, been, been knowing this year marks my, will be my 10 year anniversary. July 2012 was when I first got on Twitter and had at Mr. Ernest Owens. That was my first official time I got on Twitter. Um, so I've been around for nearly 10 years on Twitter with that handle and has seen the evolution, right? So I know how this goes. And I know why people do what they do and how they do it. It's an art. It's a science. And I know that what she was doing and how she was doing it, she was trying to do something that did not work. It backfired, which is why she decided not to say anything more and, and go further, which was smart for her. Good for her. So as you can see, a lot is going on. I do want to bring up this thing, though, and this concern uh, that's been brought up. So in Minneapolis, um, there is a man, a black man named Amir Locke, who was killed by police with one of those no-knock warrants that has been a problem, right? No-knock warrants is what killed Breonna Taylor. The, the violation of these no-knock warrants where police could just go in your house, bust in your house. And the crazy part was there was supposed to be reform measures in place. But this shows you why police reform is trash and why people are looking at more abolitionist thoughts because you could enforce no-knock, you can say no-knock, you could do all these things and people still, the police will still do what the fuck they want to do. Well, this man was in his bed sleep, minding his business. He was killed with a no-knock warrant. No-knock warrants are, are, are just disgusting because they basically violate and, and, and they always are abused. Like, it's always chaos. A no-knock warrant automatically becomes chaos. And it's not like they're out here getting, you know, the founder of ISIS or Osama bin Laden, right? Right? A no-knock warrant, okay, for Osama bin Laden and the founder of ISIS, yeah. But these are not like domestic terrorists or 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 mastermind. These are people. These people are not carrying that level. These are nonviolent offenses or offenses that do not require that much excessive use of force. I mean, if you're somewhat a moderate or police reformist, right? The 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 one thing that I think is a difference between people who are into abolition or those who are into police reform is that the debate for me always becomes the conversation around excessive use of force. Do you believe that police can be, can, do you believe excessive use of force can, can happen? Can you, can you control, I mean, can you control, can you temper? Do you think that policy will stop police's excessive use of force? Some people believe it can and others believe it can't. Abolitionists believe that that is not going to work. Reformists think that they can create more and more policies that can reduce the excessive force. The reality is that policy can happen, but does behavior change? 
because then you have to not only reform the policy for excessive use of force, you then have to change the policy on consequences if they violate the excessive use of force. So the police systems and reforming reform policy minds, you have to keep creating a, a, a reform for reform. So it's like, okay, let's say you say no excessive use of force. Then you have to believe that the police will do that. Okay, what happens if the police don't do that? You have to look at the consequences. Right now, cops can do crimes or violate their policies and they're not automatically kicked out of the force. There's all types of ways for them to get, you know, arbitration and shit for them to stay. You didn't got to change that. You didn't got to work with police units. So you have to work with legislators and police unions at the same fucking time. That's too much motherfucking time. And in the meantime, while you're trying to create those policies, they're still violating the policies and getting away with it. So then you have to take years and years. It is so fucking incremental that I don't know how anyone do it. I'm just like abolish all the shit. That 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 gets in my mind sometimes. I'm like fuck all of it because it, they will not they will not listen. They will not comply. You can create a policy today, and they'll violate it, and then what happens? A suspension for two weeks. Huh. Huh. We'll get on that in a minute too. What happens? What happens? But I bring this up to say that interesting enough. Since that has happened and people have been talking about this man, Amir Locke, uh, Black Lives Matter, right? His Black Life Matters. Uh, Mayor Jacob Frey in Minneapolis is now bringing in a team to review and to implement and to advise with him on this. And he has called no none other than D. Ray McKesson to be a part of this. As a result of that, there has been a lot of people online pushing back against this decision. Because of the story that I wrote, that the story that came out. So now people are once again concerned. They're like, why is D-Ray a part? Is that they not read the New York Magazine story about Campaign Zero? Did they not hear the issues he's got going on with Sam? So they not know that the data and the things that he's using at this point will be obsolete because he doesn't have someone currently working at Page and people are, are, are scared that that's the case. There's a lot going on. Like, come on. Mm, 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 mm. It, it, it's just, you know, somebody didn't understand the assignment. You know what I'm saying? Somebody did not understand the assignment. So I don't know what to tell Jacob Frey, but it's not looking good for him. It's not looking good for Mr. Frey or Mayor Frey. You know, I don't I don't know what's going to happen now. Um, but people are following it. And there's there's been a lot of blowback um, since this decision. I, I just will tell people, be smart. You know, be smart. Um, mm, mm, mm. Well, you know, it, it's it, like I said, it, it's it's, you know, there are people in this movement, and I will say this, because I'm just, you know, since I'm talking my shit, but I'm talking truth. I think there are people who benefit off of consistently seeing these types of concerns. There, There's a lot of concerns that there are people that benefit off of reform because reform is, is fancy, right? 
It's it's sexy, right? It's something that can get people tons of money. And a lot of people, I think, benefit from that. Um, and that tells a lot. If that makes sense. There's a lot of there's a lot of people who benefit from reform and it's one of those things where people have to look at people and say, well, what's going on? You know, uh, if you're if you're out here in these streets, if you're going to stuff, if you're going to events, you, you want to know who you're being affiliated and why. That, that's all I'm going to say. Think about it. That that's. That's what I'll say. Think about it. <laughs> you know, a lot of people want to benefit off of uh, incremental steps, right? Because the longer you can be in a program, if you're doing, you know, advocacy, if you're doing anything that's about reform, right? There's almost a benefit to staying with a company like any like Campaign Zero, for example, right? Or how it is now, right? D-Ray benefits from a system that is trying to push reform because he, he'll keep making money and keep having a job and keep getting contracts because he'll consistently be going tit for tit, bit by bit, and that gives him time. Versus in some cases, if you're working to completely overhaul the system or you want to say abolition or you just want to go and just start eliminating certain cuts and making cuts to police budgets and going in this defund system then all of this stupid fluff that is happening in between this cushion goes away. Those types of pushes fundamentally puts Deer in a position and people like him to have to then figure out, okay, if this is not what people want. And so the reality is that if more and more community are pushing against these types of police reform measures because they find them not to be important, you're going to lose the ability to get community input. So then you become an enemy of your own people. Because essentially, if you're working, if you're not working with community on things that they believe to be beneficial to them, and you're doing something completely, you know, going something that's antagonizing them, your credibility and your support begins to wane from the public. And if that's why they hire you, is because they think you're a figurehead of the community and you're not, then what is your value at that point? Like, I mean, take that, take them seriously. Like, the reason why D-Ray and people like him had been utilized, brought to the White House, brought to all these different spaces is because the perception was that they were on the ground and they were there and they were talking to community and they were engaging community and therefore they were bringing that expertise to the position they're in. That was the perception, right, 10 years ago, eight years ago, uh, you know, when, you know, when Ferguson happened eight years ago uh, or nearly eight years ago. Uh, all of these other movements, right, there were people on the ground that people were like, OK, these activists, these in, these thought leaders, whatever, they, they can bring some to the table to help us better help the community. That was what the perception was or how they at least were used or tokenized. Right. But now that's not the case. Community didn't do that. If that makes sense. Community would have done that. That's a that's a different situation. I think that that's what's happening too much um, 
you know. If that makes sense, right? Mm, 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 mm. Mm-mm. Just a lot. So I think that's the problem. Um, you know what I'm saying? Ugh, goodness. It's just so much. Mm-mm-mm. I just it's just a lot to process. Um, it's, it's just a lot to process. Um, because for so long, we're at that point in the movement now that there's been two years, 10 years of this current movement, right? For Black Lives in this way that we're starting to see some of the very early people like the Patrice Colors Khan, the others. I mean, did you see that story in New York Magazine that was also a part of this package about the murky finances of Black Lives Matter? How there is like people out here who's been fighting in a movement that are like going dead broke for an organization where its leaders in their particular movement is buying multi-million dollar portfolios of property um, and continue to, you know, try to escape accountability or divorce themselves from any accountability on any of this stuff. Like they go on Mark Lamont Hill's black news channel and promote their books. And Mark gives them softball questions and act like he doesn't know what's going on in these streets. Bullshit. There you have them, you know, getting fluff stories in the Los Angeles times where people ask them some specific questions, but then they don't ever go too, too far. And then they harass editors when real stories come out about them that's holding them accountable that they don't want because they want to dodge real questions about how they make their money or what's going on with this money, right? We're talking millions upon millions of dollars. And this is the people's money, donations. People are donating money thinking that they're actually going to make a dent in any of the social justice. And what has happened? What has happened? What has happened? It's time to ask that question. And black people, because I'm talking to the black listeners of this podcast, right? We have given some of our own people so much grace, so much grace in this movement work, right? Where when they came out, we knew the odds were against those activists. We knew that they were against those organizers. We knew it was against those grassroots looters. We knew that the odds was against them because the anti-blackness is real. The racism is real. White supremacy is real. That's true. All of that is true. No denying that, right? But when you start fucking over your own people with the money and the support and leadership that you're supposed to have, it's really hard as a black person to stay silent within our community when you witness that stuff happening to us by them even though we're us, right? That's the that's the real struggle. And what I don't like about some of the things I've seen in the press, okay, that, you know, Patrice, who is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, uh, the, the organization, right? The Global Network. 
what I don't like about her and what she's kind of done is that every time she's hit with questions about the finances or some of the other concerns, what she has done is she has shifted attention and talking about the far right media and, you know, making it a far right conspiracy the same way that was what they were, what the, what the Democrats are saying about uh, Bill Clinton, that it was a far right conspiracy against him. Yes, but he was also fucking around with Monica Lewinsky and lying to the American people. That was not a far right conspiracy. That was him and his dick. And so when you recognize that two things could be true at the same time. And you're trying to focus on that one point because that's the point that you don't understand. And it continues to get gaslit with excuses about white people when you're not talking about the concerns of white people. You're talking about the concerns of other black people who are working with you. That is saying they don't understand what's happening here. And you're consistently trying to act like you got a target on your back and it's only being criticized by conservatives and that that's what's pushing this narrative, that is bullshit. That is a lie. I have spoken to several Black Lives Matter activists who are affiliated with actual recognized chapters. I've spoken to several of them from different parts. I mean, from Ferguson. You got to talk to some of these people in Ferguson. The stories they have about what BLM Network did when they came over there. I mean, there are people that explicitly say that while they were out there with live scam cameras videotaping or getting stuff videotaped, they were getting their asses beat while these co-founders were talking to the press. Alicia Garza and, 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 and Patrice were on camera talking to CNN, even though there was mayhem happening in those communities. And they were not on those grounds. They were in hotels. They were promising them, allegedly promising them money and visibility for their chapters and their groups. And this was not happening. That's a problem. That's a whole problem. There, there's just no way that you can make that make sense. That that's you know, and I think the one of the frustrating things has been is seeing people who don't understand that, right? That don't, you know, I remember when this story was first coming out, there were people that were like, oh, you know, this infighting, this infighting, black people can't be having infighting. We can't black people deserve to be as humane and as transparent as possible. There's no such like infighting does not have like that's just the most like abuse like it's it's almost like you support abuse it's almost like you don't have anything educate to say so you just say the typical talking points because you haven't taken time to flesh things out and think you sound dumb when when i hear people when people come out about abuse um disrespect mismanagement you know they think something suspicious is going on when people come forward to tell their truth or tell stories that that are pertinent to their life if the only thing you can do is worry about how white people perceive it, you are part of the problem. There, I can't tell you how many times I have spoken to rape victims that told their stories. And that all that was said was, 
is, oh my goodness, this is going to be bad for the community. This is going to look bad. This We're going to look bad. This is messy. This is this. So you're so caught up in the white gaze of it all. You're so caught about perception. You're not taking time to listen and ask this person, how do you feel? And then you wonder why people don't come forward to share their stories. Because you don't really want them to. You really don't. You don't want the truth. Some people, not everybody, but a couple of y'all don't want the truth. Y'all don't want to. You either know the truth and don't care or you're complicit with it all together. But you can just say that without acting like you're doing a service. Because, again, if you live your life around a perception of what white people think about something without recognizing that white people are not superior to us, they're not smarter than us, they're not better than us, and they don't fucking matter in the sense of how we should dictate our lives, then you are perpetuating the same anti Black sentiment and white supremacy that has kept us in many ways behind for so long. You're perpetuating the, the silence. You're perpetuating the violence. And, and that's something that we don't talk about enough. And I just feel like this in my soul. Like I wasn't thinking about talking about this in the podcast. But this is something that I have oftentimes have had to fight in my community with other Black people about when I tell stories about issues. Here's my thing about it, right? If if you don't want other black people writing and covering issues and controversies in our community as journalists, then who should tell those stories? Do you want the white media to just tell those stories? Do you just want white people to tell those stories? Because I thought y'all were the same people that was like, you can't believe the media because it's white, it's white people writing. It's it's white people telling our stories. Okay, so what happens when black people tell our stories? The good, the bad, the ugly, the in-between. Then what do you say about them, right? Are we not Uncle Tom's to y'all? Are we snakes? Like, what are we? Or, or is it just that we're supposed to just shut up and lie and distort and tell you all fairy tales while we continue to all be fucked over? I don't know which, what do y'all want? I, I don't know. I don't know sometimes. I don't know because... It's like one moment, it's why nobody told us or I knew it all along, but I didn't say nothing or I knew somebody was going to eventually say something or write about it. Well, who was going to do it? Because it just can't be Becky and Chad and Karen. They can't. And so I have learned many years ago. Because I done been through this already. Y'all know I was built to last. Okay. <laughs> Not like up certain cars. No shameless, no plug to that car, but I was built to last. Okay. I am earnest tough. Not Ford tough because Ford is weak, but I am earnest tough. And I just feel like I've, I've seen this pattern. And what I've come to see is that as more of the story gets told, then people tend to change their perspectives. And so I'll wait for you to change your perspective because I'm not changing my approach because my approach is tried and true. It's effective. It's called journalism. And it what gets shit done. And when you're working in community, sometimes there's people who may not get it until later. And that's okay. But as the creator, as the journalist, as the innovator, as the person I am, I know that sometimes the things that I put out and the things that I do is not always going to be instantly gratified. I get that. That like I I purposely choose to grapple tough topics so that I don't become some easy disposable pair of Spencer that y'all can just pop something in and pop something else out of. 
I have seen so many of my colleagues in this industry just go on and be media personalities. They don't even give a fuck about actual investigative journalism, telling stories, speaking truth to power. All they become is figureheads. They're getting paid to give talking points. It's disgusting. I've seen so many people that I've looked up to in this business stop being powerful voices in journalism and just become just sellouts. Like they're just hopping from one TV station to the next. They just want to just party and bullshit. They don't actually care about the implications. They're all in representational politics. They want to be the first this, the first that, the first this, the first that. That's all they care about. Uh, they want to get corporate money all day long, which is whatever, right? But they have lost sight of what they're supposed to be doing in this business. At least I thought, right? Like, I didn't think the goal was to be famous. And that's it. Like, that was it for you? The goal was to be famous? Y'all just want to be famous? That's it? Y'all just want blue checks on Twitter? Y'all just want to get verified? Like, that's it for y'all? You know, get a couple of awards just because you're there. And then be a part of the crab a barrel circle where white media outlets only pick a handful of y'all. And then y'all do that. That's what y'all want. That's not what I care for. This is fruits of the labor, but that's not my fruit. You understand what I'm saying? Like, sure, I've gotten awards. I, I get these things. But that's not what drives my intention to do what I do. I have taken the unpopular stances day in and day out. I have fought my way to where I'm at. And I've realized that I didn't have to sleep with anybody. I didn't have to fuck over anybody. I didn't have to steal from anybody to get there. Some of y'all can't say the same. And so when I saw how certain people in this industry reacted to this piece, you know, the tacky people, right? It showed me and told me a lot about how this industry is continuing to devolve. I'm not saying journalism is dead. I'm just saying that there's more frauds in it than were before. And if that means that I don't get to sit with certain people because of that, that's fine. Because I've never sat with y'all before and I'm definitely not going to sit with y'all now. I love living in Philadelphia. I don't need to be in New York and LA faking with y'all. I've seen and know so much. And it's not this, this, is, not the ter this is not the era in my life or the time right now to pour that tea. But, you know, I'll get older and have what I call my Aretha era where, you know, Aretha and Dion Warwick and them, they got older and they started telling you what was really going on. I I'll tell the that story one of those days. For now, it will be with my best friends. But y'all will find out soon. Not now, but down the road. And I'll tell the stories about what really was going down. <laughs> but, you know, I just got to live my life and keep doing what I'm doing and stay, up and stay uplifted. And I've been very happy for that so many people I did not know um, reached out to me this week and just gave me lots of love about this story and the work. And it opened new doors, new opportunities that, again, stay tuned, that wasn't even fathomed before this even came about. And just being able to have more opportunities and build on my career and do this work feels empowering. And to know that the people in the community, it's the everyday people that is for me. It's the everyday people for me. Right. 
that read this and get excited and also learn and change their minds. There was someone who reached out to me in my comments and said, listen, I read your story and I and I stopped giving money to Campaign Zero because I didn't know that those co-founders had left the way they did. I didn't know it was all that. I don't support that, right? They 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 divested from that institution, right? That's that's important. Someone said to me, said, look, I, you know, we had D on our list to be one of our keynote speakers, but now after what he did to Sam, I don't want to have him be a speaker. I'm not going to reach out to him to, to, to speak. That's a, that's a, that's a statement, y'all. That, that, that's something, right? You all are making conscious decisions based off of my news. That feels good. That's the stuff that, this is why I do it, right? So that we can see change, that people can be informed and make informed decisions. Okay, whether or not some of these bougie-ass journalists and these other irrelevant-ass publications and news stations care for fuck, I don't care. <laughs> it's real. I'm being real. I'm being real, right? That's what makes me different. I'm unbought and I'm unbothered. There's people out here in my text messages talking about... Oh, I can't, you know, I love your piece. It was good, but you know, I can't share it because you know, uh, Brittany is my girl, you know. Oh, okay, you're cool with Brittany. Well, yeah, me and D-Ray kind of cool. I like the piece, but I can't write it. I, I won't, I, you know, I just want you to know I read it. I respect what you do, you know. Oh, you respect what I do, but you can't reach me because you cool with D-Ray. Well, why are you cool with D-Ray? Call D-Ray and tell D-Ray what, what's going on with that $40 million then, since you that's your homeboy. Why, why get in my phone and tell me anything? But that's what I say. It'd be all that half-ass kissing, all that backdoor, all that backdoor shit. I laugh because I don't expect none of these people to be my friends in real life. I don't. But what's funny to me is that he may not even know that some of the people that he think are his homies are at my phone and my DMs telling me otherwise, telling me they fuck with me, but they can't do X, Y, Z. Well, you if you don't fuck with me, you don't fuck with Listen, if you, listen, you don't fuck with me at all. You just a, you just a groupie. But I appreciate the ass kissing. But it's not going anywhere around here. But, you know, I just had to say that. I had to get that off my chest. I had to let that be known. I had to put that all on the table for y'all. And we move on. <laughs> um, so, Facebook is better. It's collapsing, y'all. Um, or it's on a slow collapse. But maybe a big one. So, around 20% of its stock decreased. Um after the, this, 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 this quarter report, y'all, the, these quarterly reports, y'all, woo, got the girls shook. These quarterly reports came out and it's got people so scared that they lost literally a quarter of their entire worth, over 200 and something billion dollars, I believe. Yeah, like 200 and something, 60 billion dollars they lost. Like, Mark Zuckerberg is, like, this is crazy. Like, super crazy. Um, you know, Facebook is no longer Facebook. So, it's, it's, it's called Meta. So, the Meta platforms includes Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. And this week, he told them um, his company had a market value of $900 billion and then became worth $720 billion within 30 minutes after... And that was a spectacular 22% fall. And that's one of the largest and most powerful companies in the world. And then to make matters worse, 
the day after his quarterly announcement, the stock traded 25% lower when stock markets opened on Thursday, which made its market value around $670 million. That's after it was worth $900 billion. Now it's only worth $670 billion. Now let me say a, 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 billion, like a, a couple of billion. This ain't no joke. I just, I'm just letting y'all know this is not a joke. And so when I hear stories like that, right, it just goes, well, first of all, Whitey on the moon, but also too, I'm just gagging at the point that all this is going on. Mm. It's just... It's just a lot. I just cannot. I can just, I, I cannot. I, let me just say, I just cannot. And I mean, with, with so we knew this was going to happen. You know, TikTok is definitely, clearly TikTok is, is fucking up with Meta. I don't have a TikTok account. I'm not trying to have a TikTok account. Um, no, no shade, but I have to say this to my influences with the TikTok. A moment. My influences, take this in. Don't get offended. Don't get your feelings hurt. But I have to say this. So there's been a lot of PR companies, firms, people that's really been getting excited about TikTok, obsessing over TikTok to the point where they're, you know, inviting people to their events and their, and their festivities based on how many TikTok followers they have, yada, yada, buzz or whatever. There's some girl named Cass in the city. I don't know her personally, but I hear that she's apparently trying to shake the girls down allegedly for money to go to these events. I mean, she's apparently a diva. Allegedly, I don't know her. I just, you know, that's what I hear. She's apparently got the biggest TikTok following on in the city or one of the biggest in the city. She's one of the biggest TikTok influencers in the city. And apparently she's asking people to give her a thousand dollars to make an appearance and stuff. Allegedly, um, other TikTokers just say that, you know, apparently she's like, you know, whatever. My whole thing is, and no disrespect to cast in the city or people who got big TikTok followers. Let me just explain something to y'all about how this business works. Take this. Don't get offended because I don't know you. I don't have shade. I'm just saying that that's what the narrative is out there. Um, I would say this. There's a lot of people who get on these platforms and I don't want to be shady, but what do you do? Like there was a t- like the era of social media. Food, and I could talk. I can so talk about this because I've lived this life for so many years. And as a as a bad bitch with talent, and I'm referring to myself as a bad bitch with talent, let's be clear. I've seen people come and go. When I was the best example for me was when I was in college, I was at Penn. There was a boy in my program. He came from money. He was a spoiled little brat, but he was a little younger than me. But he was a Vine star. And he used to always talk about watermelon, like the lemon, but there was a like, I don't know, a black guy getting excited about watermelon and vine was never funny to me. But he made a whole, he became a thing because of that. And to me, I just was like, he was a Vine star. This was a thing. Like, oh, you're Vine famous because you make videos on Vine. And you make videos of yourself looking like you have some type of mental disability. Um, and you're running off of that. Like that, when that, in that era where people acted like they had cognitive disorders and stuff. And they thought that that was a, a thing. Um that was the kind of stuff that people used to do on the internet for quick laughs and funny stuff. I guess they thought it was funny. I never found it funny, but 
people think that kind of stuff is funny. You remember those old days on TV when people used to make like comedy was very physical uh, and it required people to just do the most ridiculous asinine things to get laughs. Like we're past that era in comedy, I feel, which I'm happy about. But it used to be very stereotypical. Like it relied, it relied a lot on stereotypes about people with uh, mental disabilities, people who were of color, women, gay people, right? Stereotypes, right? And you would have to be a caricature of that, right? It's just terrible. So that was an era. And I mean, there's still people still doing it, but it doesn't carry the same weight. But Vine was all about that. All type of this young, snap, snappy type of personality type things. Um, and you didn't know who these people were and they were supposed to be so important because they make this content. Well, Vine died. R.I.P. Vine. The Vine died. Snapchat is around, but it does not carry any weight like it used to. Um, even though people like to do ads, ads work well on Snapchat, but Snapchat does not carry the weight. The kids don't care for it as much as they used to. And a lot of that is because of what happened with Meta. Meta had Instagram, Instagram do stories, so now we're there. For me, I don't really care about Snap, uh, TikTok. I just think that TikTok does not intellectually stimulate me. I might be a snob, maybe because I'm 30 and, you know, I'm no longer a, a, a child star. Who knows? But, like, I don't care about going on TikTok and doing some dance and trying to point at shit to make shit. I just think it's stupid. And, like, you got to know your audience. Like, people don't do enough research on social media, like, about, like, who your audience is. Like, TikTok is for the kids. And, yeah, a lot of other folks are trying to get on there. Like, if you're a company trying to sell cookies, yes, go on TikTok and dump some cookies and some fucking milk to get people to buy the cookies. I get why companies do it. I don't get why grown-ass people do it. I don't. There are people who are trying... Like, I just think it's very... First of all, it's very shallow. It's a very shallow... I mean, all these apps are shallow, but this is a very shallow fucking app because people really be lying. I mean, Instagram is bad, too. But, oh, my God, TikTok is like... What, what, like, everybody's trying to give people life hacks and tips. I'm like, first of all, 90% of these life hacks and tips are already on the internet already. I don't know what it is, but it's short, quick, and funny. Maybe I sound like, listen, I've just seen a lot of apps come and go, and I just feel like this is one of those apps that it's going, it, it was a success during the pandemic because we had nothing to fucking do in the pandemic. I wasn't on TikTok, but a lot of people were. And what I'm hearing is that that algorithm, and the way that they're blocking people, the racism around search engines and shit, the words. The, it's very weird on that fucking app. Black folks are still being exploited. So there's nothing pioneer about it. <laughs> like, you, you create a wave that will find ways to provide equity for black creators. Y'all still exploiting white girls on there, still in dance moves they can't actually do right. Like, it's just a lot of shit on TikTok that just I can't fuck with as a paid intellectual talent. I, I It does not spell opportunity and access access for me it does not it does not spell that to me it spells exploitation corny shit cat videos me putting my fingers around and stunts that's it so i i don't base it but one of the things that has been really crazy about marketing in the past five years especially is that there's been this drive of pr companies people putting a lot of money in social but not just social, but social media influencers. And there's been a lot of that because they're like, they got a lot of followers, a lot of views. But how are you measuring those views? How are you measuring if it's really leading to that? I mean, some people 
The product makes sense. I could see it building some visibility. But some stuff just does not add up. It does not make sense. Or maybe the company you have or the business you have is not mainstream enough for it to be accessible. It's just a lot of stuff that I think people are not factoring in when investing into these influencers. And it's wasting money and the marketing is not solid. And I'm saying this as a traditional media broad that does dabble in social. But you got to be able to dabble in social in a way that's very sophisticated, very thoughtful, very intentional. And I don't think that's happening with the content that I'm seeing on social media. I'm not seeing these individuals really get creative or thoughtful about the content they're putting up. I'm just seeing them do a lot of this fake shit where they're like, oh, you know, I'm here. The food is good. But you're not even eating the food, sis. You're just taking pictures of the food. You know, are you really putting, like, I want to see you eat that motherfucker. Like, I want to see, or I want to know that you're eating. I want to see you drink the drink, right? Like, I just think there's a lot of shallowness on it. And it's becoming so stagey. It's becoming more of a production than it was natural. Like, I'm still trying to be, a, I'm still a natural influencer in the sense that when I go out to stuff, when I am doing influencer stuff, like, let's be clear. Um, and I'm going, I'm eating at restaurants. I can take pictures of food that I like. If I don't like the food, I'm not taking a picture of it. Facts. My bestie knows that. Jamarcus and I know. When I go to certain places, I'm like, ooh, this food not good, but these drinks are. I'm going to take a picture of these drinks because I like the drinks. I don't like the food. Like, I keep it 100. If I'm not feeling something, I'm not going to take pictures of it. I'm not going to promote something I don't like. I think there's a lot of people that get, the influencer thing has gotten so weird that you got people selling stuff that you just, you know they don't use. Like, I don't know why Courtney and Khloe Kardashian, them girls, are getting all these deals as influencers like, nobody believes you. No one, everybody knows that Chloe is not brushing her teeth with that fucking charcoal toothbrush that she was promoting a couple years ago. We, we know y'all not out here using waist trainers and that tummy tea, y'all. These celebrities. We know that y'all know. Y'all got personal fitness trainers. Y'all got people that are nutritionists and people that's doing your diets for y'all. Y'all are not using any of these, pro any of these products. It, it's bad, right? Like, like, when I, like, first of all, how do you track it again? Like, People sometimes track it by discount codes. So if a lot of people are using a discount code, then they know that your influence do it. Like that's how you can track influence by discount code or name drop. Or if there's somebody say, look, RSCP to this restaurant on my link, link in the bio that you can measure if reservations are coming through this person's link to see if this person has that kind of influence. I know my influence. I know there are people that go to restaurants because I was there. They literally say to me, I went because you was there. They even tell the owners. The owners come back to me and say, hey, there was a couple that came the other day that said they went because they saw you went. It was there. Like, people know my influence trick carries. That, that's a very, like, clear thing. But you got to know what you're selling. It's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. But there's some people out here that just go anywhere because they got a bunch of followers. And they think that their followers are like cows that they can shove products in their face that are not intentional or make any sense. Like, people have to be able to believe that this is something you fucking like. Like, I like nice things. I like nice things. I like nice stuff. Like, take that however you like it. Whatever I push, it's got to be of quality. It's got to be of quality that fits my taste. If I can't drink it and if I wouldn't wear it or if I wouldn't buy it, I would never tell anyone else to. But some of your faves will not say the same. And what's crazy about these TikToks is that there's these crazy algorithms it's like playing the lottery, I hear. Like someone was talking about how one day they could get 30,000 followers and then they will lose 5,000 next day. Do you really think that 5,000 people just woke up and said, I'm not going to follow you anymore? Like that doesn't make sense. Unless you did something, like you did a crime or something. 
Just saying. It's like if you did a crime, I could see that. But do you think people will sit up and like completely just stop fucking with you? Like, like you gain 30 random people. Like, I like anytime analytics are that spotty, then how can you determine the invite list for your events based off of that kind of influence? So I always want to tell some of my people out here, if you are an influencer, don't be defined by one platform. Make sure that you're creating content, have a website, have a place for your work. If you have ideas, a voice, opinion, build a brand that is beyond whatever that social media place is. Because when that app dies, so will your career, so will your reputation. Like for me, I'm not defined by any platform. When Instagram went down, a brother had a website, okay? <laughs> Nothing's shut down over here. But some of y'all can't say the same. If Instagram goes away, I'm still relevant. I still have somewhere to go. I still have things. Will you? And if that question is no, then figure out how do you build a brand and build your work beyond that. That's a free tip. That's free consulting. I'm telling you something that you didn't have to pay someone for because this podcast is free as of right now. Take that, apply it, use it. Because I see so many people not in the mix because one one thing left, something moved. Don't let that be you. That's all I'm saying. As far as the Facebook meta collapse thing go, Mark, good luck. <laughs> Speaking of white man failing, uh, CNN, CNN's Jeff Zuckerberg is leaving, has left, has resigned from CNN. And y'all, okay, I was trying to figure out all the tea. He's like, oh, I didn't disclose a relationship with a partner. Let me, listen, let's break this all down. Once and for all, Jeff Zucker left CNN as, a, as the president, the CEO, whatever, because of the fact, okay, that... During the Chris Cuomo investigation, which I know Chris Cuomo is a brother of Andrew Cuomo, the disgraced ex-governor who was caught up in a lot of sexual harassment, Me Too um, allegations, right? Cuomo was found to be basically supporting his brother in an improper way while he was working at CNN. We're finding out that Jeff Zucker was in on some of this mess in the weirdest way. So, for example, he was sleeping with Governor Cuomo's former... Um, communications person. But let's back this up. They, he, before she went to Andrew Cuomo, she was at, M she, well, she left Andrew Cuomo and went to NBC News. That is when she met Jeff Zucker. They had a thing going on. Jeff Zucker then went to CNN. She left NBC, went to CNN, and they continued their little, their little situation. Now, mind you, Chris Cuomo was at CNN as well. Homegirl was there too. She'd been up in the mix. So you wonder to yourself, hmm, from the jump, this man been in bed with this woman. He already knew what was going on, what could have been going on. Because when she left in her resignation letter, when she departed, she said she would always be loyal to Chris, to Andrew Cuomo. She would always be grateful and thankful and all these things. She was supportive of him and she was going to always be loyal. So they didn't end on bad terms. Okay. Zucker already knew her before CNN. They was messing around, allegedly, before CNN. 
So when she came to CNN, they were still fucking. And mind you, Chris Cuomo's doing this thing on TV. So when all this was going on, you have to start asking yourself, okay, you don't think this is going to be a conflict of interest? You don't think that she might be in your ear, swaying your judgment? Like when everybody was saying Chris Cuomo needs to leave, why is he not leaving? It's because one of the loyal members of that Cuomo clan was in the bed with the president of CNN. Media is messy. So he had to go. And she's been going too. But now everybody gone. Whew. As we continue to go on. We're going to talk about situations. Because we got to talk about these two together. Whoopi Goldberg. Okay. A lot of people saw what I said about Whoopi Goldberg. My tweets. And here's the thing. Let me be very clear about what I'm saying here before y'all all get out of hand. I'm so happy that a lot of people did not look at my tweets or look at it like I was defending, you know, Whoopi Goldberg's remarks that people view anti-Semitic. I don't think Whoopi Goldberg is anti-Semitic. And y'all know I'm damn sure not anti-Semitic. It just ain't happening over here. Here's what I think went wrong with this situation with ABC interview. And I articulated my tweets very well. Okay. Let's be very clear. I think there has just been a double a double standard um, at ABC, but also across media companies when it comes to these conversations about free speech and, ed- and, and, and teachable moments and educating people. Why is it that white people are only given the grace and the space to be educated on something without penalty versus black people in those situations? And I think it's funny on how we create a parameter in media and in society on what is a no-no and what is a okay, right? And I think that that's what annoys me as a black person in media is that I am always about accountability and putting people through situations where they need to express remorse, but also to correct behavior and to learn from it. That's where I stand. I just get annoyed because I don't see that being equally done. What happened with Whoopi Goldberg is she went on the show, The View, they were discussing the banning of of something that was Jewish. And in the conversation, the topic, she said something along the lines that the Holocaust, it was about the Holocaust uh, specifically, that essentially that the Holocaust was not about race. It was about man acts against humanity. Now, let me backtrack this context about Whoopi. Because Whoopi has had interesting Things she has said in the view over the years. Okay, like stand up for her good old friend Mel Gibson, who is a real anti Semite. Um, you know, acting like Roman Polanski didn't do quote unquote rape, rape. Or, you know, defending Bill Cosby and not speaking out against Bill Cosby when she did. You know, she's she's still she's an old woman, older woman, who definitely has had some bad takes over the years. However, in this situation, um, I think it's a, it, it was really an educational default, right? There was a problem. I think what was going on with Whoopi, her understanding, is that Whoopi's an older woman that sees race in a different way. Her context of understanding race is in a very American sense of race, which involves people of color, black and brown people being persecuted historically. That was how she perceived it, which made her never see the Holocaust with that lens as being about race because she's like Jewish people are white 
the Europeans are white, the Germans are white, so this could be about racism. However, history teaches us and tells us very quickly and very clearly that Hitler saw Jewish people as a race. He saw them as a race that he wanted to erase off the face of the planet. And that even though whether or not Jewish people saw themselves as being people of color or whatever the case be, he saw them, the Nazis saw them as a race of people. And he was targeting them based on those tropes because in his mind, when he saw the race, right, Jewish people are not, Caucasians are not the only Jewish people. There are black Jews. There were other Jews that were killed during the Holocaust that were not just the skin, the complexion of white. Let's be clear. But in that regard, he saw them as a certain subtexture, a certain culture, a certain identity that was a race. And he was targeting them based on that. The same way he hated other groups of people, he also hated them in that same group. He, he bundled them up as a racial group that he wanted to target. So he didn't see Jewish people as white people with a different faith. He saw them as a culture and identity that was subpar to white people which furthers the notion of white supremacy and also anti-Semitism combined. It's, inter it's very intersectional. And I don't think would be understood that. But you know what? Here's the thing. A lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people clearly don't understand race, allegedly. A lot of people don't understand it because most of our public schools and these Republicans are currently trying to ban books to educate people about critical race theory, which they are doing to fuck with black and brown people. But I realize actually stopping critical race theory conversations will do damage not only to black and brown people, but to Jewish people, but to other people who have had experiences of racism throughout all history. Like when you ban books on critical race theory, you stop people from understanding the Holocaust, slavery, and other atrocities to man based on identity in that kind of way. Like when you ban books on, you know, I don't know, Stonewall. When you ban those books, you, you're, you're taking out context for people to make those linkages. So I don't know, to all the Jewish people out there who are white identifying, Understand that if you are against these critical race theory books, because see, here's the other comp complicated aspect, but I'm going to wait for that in a minute, because that's another part of this conversation that needs to be addressed. But to start off, though, it's a lack of education about the Holocaust, about racism, about slavery, about all these humanity, these atrocities, the lack of people connecting the dots between hatred and white supremacy as a global force rather than just an international um, a national force or a particular force. Like white supremacy impacts everybody. It does not just impact black people. It does not just impact Latinx people. It impacts everybody. And culturally, everyone has suffered because of the acts of white supremacy. Black and brown people more directly in certain cases. Jewish people through the Holocaust, clearly. White supremacy has impacted various groups in different ways. I would argue that the economy is fucked because of white supremacy. I believe that blue collar working class people have been completely fucked over white supremacy because of the superiority complex and classism of certain white people over other white people. They look at them as a subset and their affiliations and their closeness to the poverty that disproportionately impacts black and brown people makes them also feel like they're less subpar. Let's wake it up real quick. They see various sectors that are closer to blackness and brownness as being low class. They don't give a fuck about you no more than they give a fuck about anybody else. That's how white supremacy works. It, it perpetuates caste systems. It supports classism. It, it supports all of these things. So if you take white supremacy out of the conversation, 
You, you ignore the fact that all these other isms are all connected to it. So did, why is that not the case, right? We'll get there. Let's start with the fact, though. Education in this country sucks. So people like Whoopi Goldberg think the way she thinks because that's the way that race has been taught in this country. Because a lot of people, even in society, like, I don't know, Jewish people that I know, people I know, they don't look at themselves in that same context around race that we do today. Like, they see themselves as white. They identify as white today, right? They identify as white. They don't see themselves in that category. They often, there are some Jewish people that are white that are Donald Trump supporters. I know Jewish people that support Donald Trump aggressively. And I have been baffled because I'm sitting here like, like, like Ben Shapiro, right? How are Ben Shapiro supporting racist ideas? How does Ben Shapiro support Trump and Trump rhetoric? How does he not see that as a Jewish person, that type of rhetoric hurts people like him as well? Because he does not see himself in that same category as black and brown people. He doesn't see himself as a marginalized community because he believes that by identifying as white, he's a part of a, a more elite class that then puts him in a position where he doesn't have to see the atrocities that happens to him as a part of a larger part of white supremacy. He doesn't see himself suffering from the consequences of white supremacy. Because if he says white supremacy is why the Holocaust happens, then he automatically others himself in a way that aligns himself with the struggles that has happened to other people that do not look like him. And if you're trying to align yourself with Donald Trump, who's a white supremacist, that means that you no longer see yourself as a Jewish person that's been othered by that same white supremacist. I am waking it up right now. I need people to understand what happened here, how we got to this point, that there was a point, and, and I know because my grandmama taught me, all right? I knew from my grandparents who was in the civil rights movement, right? We knew Jewish people at that time in America. And there are many Jewish people that know this today. That are my friends that understand this, right? Alliance and understanding, right? Went through that. Went to Selma, did those trips. I, I know this. I've done these conversations. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, okay, where there is a huge Jewish population. And I had very wonderful, profound conversations with Jewish students. And we talked about alliances and understandings. We understood the importance of interfaith conversations. We understood that. Why are those conversations happening on the national scale? Because I will support that any day. And I have. See, I'm not talking from just, you know, personal. But I'm talking from experience here. This is my, this is definitely my space. What happened in this situation and what's really upsetting is that what I've learned is that after the, the, the civil rights movement, there were a lot of Jewish people nationally that began to, uh, that, that began to identify as strictly white. They, 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 just, they did not look at their Jewish identity as a marginalized identity. Like being black, we're marginalized because we're black, right? We know that it's a marginalized identity in the United States. 
there was a point for them where they did not see themselves as being in that community. They they identified as white. Some of them, you know, changed their names. Some of them just completely did not outwardly identify as Jewish unless it came to conversation. I've been at Penn where there's been various degrees of how people express or show their. There's some people that are Orthodox Jewish. They are very much outward about their expressions and their identity and their faith and who they are and their identity. And they see themselves as this, as this particular race, right? They recognize in that way. But there are some Jewish people I know that's like, they don't even tell you. They don't even say anything. It's like, they only express, like, I know once someone said uh, that they are, was it casual? They're a, 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 a something. It was like a cultural, they were culturally Jewish or something, but they did not identify through faith. It was more like, oh, when there's Hanukkah, I participate in Hanukkah. Um, I, I, you know, partake in Yom Kippur, but that's it. Like they don't really identify as they don't really identify as Jewish out really any other place. Like you would not know. And that's their prerogative, right? But in that regard, when you, when other groups and other communities interact with people like that, there becomes this perception that there are people in this community that do, because they're not talking about race or find themselves in solidarity with other marginalized communities, they've completely othered themselves out of any solidarity with black and brown communities or other groups who have been victims of white supremacy. So because of that, then you've made yourself, you've kind of separated yourself from any perception that what happened or has happened to Jewish people is anti-Semitic, but they don't make the connection between race or racism. So because there is that separation, okay, because there's that separation from black and brown people, then it leads for people like Whoopi Goldberg to not see racism in the Holocaust, even though that's what it was, right? I know that. History knows that. But with all this time that's passed, it makes people like Whoopi and others start to say things like, oh, well, if, it's, if they don't identify as a race, then how can it be about racism? And it's like, well, they may not have identified as race under America's understanding of race today, but those, 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 those the Nazis, they definitely saw them as a race and it killed them because of that. And therefore, it was an act of white supremacy and an act of racism and anti-Semitism and everything in between, right? That needs to be understood. That's what was lacking. So... Now that we got that out the way, to clarify what happened there, Whoopi, you know, got educated on it. She apologized. Her, some of her, you know, apology was, some people didn't find it as sincere as it could be. She still struggled. But the next day, she went on The View. She talked to the um, executive director of the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, and basically took that time to really, you know, listen and I remember, I, I went back and watched the episode and I was like, wow, Whoopi over here. Damn, that was swift. Like she said what she said the day before, but then quickly apologized, right? And then went on TV and got educated and apologized and made it clear that she stand with the Jewish people. Like, okay, Whoopi, cool. Like normally what happens, right? When we get pissed off at certain people, right? We get pissed off and we go, oh, 
we need an apology, or they don't just do an or they just do an apology, but they don't do anything else to express that they're gonna learn or they're gonna do better. In that moment, Whoopi got a teachable moment. She got educated, and I'm like, okay, she seems to understand. It's been corrected, and it was done in a swift way. So I was like, okay, this is this is good. I feel like this is a step in the right direction. Well, even after all that took place, uh, Kim Goodwin, who's a black woman, who is the now the president of ABC uh, News, she issued a two-week suspension for Whoopi because of it, because of the situation at hand. I'm confused because I'm just like, I can see if Whoopi just said what she said, never apologized, and then ABC slapped her with the suspension. Or if it was a situation where she just was going to stay still in her belief and then that was what she was going to think, and they suspended her. But that didn't happen here. So it, to me, just seems like hypocrisy. Because if we're talking about cancel culture, which I don't find this to be an example of cancel culture, uh, in my opinion. I don't think Whoopi's canceled. I don't think that's the case here. But if this was to be a situation where people are saying, where are opportunities, right? I just find it interesting that the critics and people, conservatives, right? Because they're liars. But we'll often push this narrative of why are we not letting people get a chance to learn from their mistakes? Why are we not using these opportunities? This could be an opportunity to educate Whoopi, not punish her. Why are we not giving people opportunity to make mistakes to be correct or whatever? Like, I don't know, Megan McCain, who was on The View and pushed, you know, anti-Asian rhetoric, was referring to it as the China, the Wuhan virus, even though she knew and the context was there, was that that was going to put a target on Asian people, which was drawing up Asian hate and violence in this country. That that the China virus and rhetoric like that by Trump that she was pushing was a problem that she apologized for. She never got suspended for two weeks. She never got suspended for any of that shit that she did over the years. And so I'm sitting there looking like, why did no one say, you know what, we should bring a representative from the Asian community to educate Megan McCain on how what she said was racist. No, 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 because she's a white woman. Because she's a white woman, because it's so easy to make an example out of other black people. It's so easy to do the gotcha for black people who fuck up than it is for white people who do. And so, you know, they said, oh, Kim Goodman's a black woman, blah, blah, blah. No, Kim was fucked up for what she did. Yep, I'm going to say it. Kim was not, it was, it, was, it was not fair. Why let the example fall on Whoopi after Whoopi had already expressed that she was wrong, went through the process to educate herself on television, and addressed it immediately versus letting the shit linger? Like, like, why punish her after she actively corrected herself on a show called The Fucking View? Like, I just think the funny part about it is that if it would have been a news show, a news host, this is a show where people are supposed to share conflicting views and navigate and wrestle it. So now you've created a show where it's okay for Megan McCain or these people are okay to say other conflicting views. But then this is the one time Right? Out of the entire show. There's that history of racism. This the one time ABC wants to decide that this response about racism or this discussion is not okay. But everything else was okay. 
Okay, it was okay for 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 you know Megan McCain to go after Asians. It was okay for those conservatives and the Trump and them to come on your show and, and express views that are fucked up in, in a historical misinformation. It's so funny how everybody else's views are a difference of opinion, but the the straw was gonna be Whoopi and Whoopi alone. The precedent had been set. And then they revamped it because a black woman was targeted. And the fucked up part about it is, is that there was an opportunity, right, that the public could have been educated about why Whoopi was wrong, including Whoopi. And instead, we now have to argue on Black History Month about now the racial double standards of what happens to black people in these situations compared to white people. You fucked up, ABC. You fucked up. Because now... We're more time spending time being sorry for Whoopi and being upset that Whoopi got two weeks suspension than we are actually talking about what happened in that conversation with the Anti-Defamation League. And now there are bigots who was started to probably, maybe there were people who, who had the views possibly that Whoopi had that was coming from an even worse place that have conspiracies about Jewish people that are unprofound, unfair. This action further perpetuates and is going to be weaponized to, to, against the Jewish community. And that's unfair and that's wrong because I saw people do it online. They were like, oh, see, see, when you talk about Jewish people, they control the media. But it was not a Jewish person that made that call. But the sad part is the perception is going to fall on Jewish people unfairly because of the fact that somebody decided to jump that gun and make the suspension to double down. And now it's a negative perception across the board. Like nobody wins in this situation. And this was a situation where it could have been an example of what is the difference between how progressives act online and how they address for accountability compared to their conservative counterparts. Instead, you know, Megan McCain decides to get out of her Chewbacca's cave to come out here and start now picking at Whoopi and being like, oh, you know, you know, liberals get it less than really. How do you say that when you have never been suspended on the show for anything for any of your racism? How do you talk about that? Girl, get the fuck off of that call. But that's what happens. That's what happens when we enforce double standards. I don't know what Whoopi's going to do. Do Whoopi want to come back on the show? I, I don't know. I feel like when you're at her level, you an EGOT, you know, you got an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, and many things in between. Okay? You can do things differently. This is sad. This is sad. This is so sad. And it's just an unnecessary, you know, situation. Because it did not have to go down like that. At all. At all. So. Yeah. So speaking of double standards. Because the double standards continue. Here's one. Joe Rogan with Spotify. I've been following this for a minute and honestly, it just keeps getting worse with Spotify. I'm just looking at things, making decisions if I'm gonna leave Spotify. I'm 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 just taking it all in. Spotify is doing some interesting things right now. 
um, as, as of today, they've removed 70 of Joe Rogan's interviews off of his podcast. 70. Spotify removed 70 of Joe Rogan's episodes off of his podcast. The 70 that they removed, um, people are saying this is coming in light in the fact that he has said the N-word on his podcast. And I guess they have found podcast episodes where he's explicitly said the N-word. I'm black, so I can say it. He said nigger in his podcast several times. He didn't say nigger. He said nigger. And, you know, NDIRE brought this to light, you know, because she has now pulled her music out of Spotify. Uh, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, others are starting to really get the fuck off of Spotify because they're like, the issue that NDRE brought up, and I and I agree with her, is that you know Joe Rogan isn't just pushing out COVID misinformation. Cool, people can talk about that all day, but he's also somebody who has definitely had a history of racism uh, on his podcast. Like that's some issues I've always had with him. I've never fe- he's been transphobic too. He's just said transphobic shit. Like this man is complete gutter trash. But because he has a multi-million dollar contract with Spotify and making money off of him, they're keeping him on there and defending him and backing him. But now there's been a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a switch, interesting enough. They guided him to really talk about how he's going to bring more experts. I think he's talking about how he's going to be more informed people. Like he's softening himself a little bit, but, but, the, the, but he's gotten away with too much and they've let him build this persona based off of it until people started to say, this is a fucking enough, right? So not only is he putting out COVID misinformation, which there was some people that are black that's like, okay, they're cool with that. I'm like, y'all really think that Joe Rogan is the fucking answer? Like, I don't get how people like that. Y'all listen to him. Y'all think he's cool? Y'all talk about how real he is. He's this. Motherfucker, listen to my podcast. Y'all, it's so funny how white men, mediocre white men like Joe Rogan is treated like he's just keeping it 100 and real. Like, earnestly speaking, does not keep it the fuck 1,000. I just get so annoyed, like, how white men, mediocre white cishet men, like Joe Rogan, who's not even mediocre. He's just, a, he's just a mess, right? He's not even, mediocre would suggest that he has some value. I don't even know if there's value there, right? But guys like him can just say whatever the fuck they want, and everybody is okay with it, and everybody's, like, acting like they're speaking some radical truth. That man is ignorant. That man is benefiting off of a very polarized, divided country. And he is basically trying to be the far left's, I'm sorry, the far right's stepping stool um, and red carpet and trying to act like it's libertarian. He ain't no libertarian. That motherfucker is crazy. They try to act like there's some, there's some, you know, smart, free-thinking motherfuckers. No, you're actually drinking out the same oppressive fountain that was passed on to you by plenty of oppressive men that date you. You're not saying anything profound or sp- or smart. The gag is you all have drank the Kool-Aid that the conservatives have fed you. That somehow having offensive ideas about people makes you a better person because it doesn't make you accountable for whatever the fuck you said and how to be better. <laughs> Take that in. So all that being said, now all this has come out about him saying the N-word all over his podcast. And then he has to send a lengthy video trying to explain how it was out of context and how he thought that as long as he said nigger in, you know, context, that it was still okay. Why would you want to say nigger at all? Why? Why, why, are, you, why are you so pressed to use that word? 
Why did you feel like it was okay to say it? Why couldn't you just say the N-word? You could have just said the N-word. I, I, even as a black person, like, when I'm talking about nigger in conversation, I normally say the N-word. But I feel like it's important for people to understand why I'm saying nigger and why you can never say nigger in your life if you're not black. And that's okay. That's completely okay. You cannot say nigger. You cannot say nigger. You cannot say none of it, okay? None of it. But you think you can. And you think that you can't talk about Quentin Tarantino and how he lets the word fly in his movies. Yeah, okay. Okay. Hmm. Look at who Quentin Tarantino has saying, saying it, though. And, and look, at, look at Quentin Tarantino, how he's been dragged for it. Don't get it twisted. You all think it's cool. You like thinking that saying that word, you know, and, and it's a complicated word. It's not complicated. You don't get to say it. Under any circumstances, it does not apply. You think you're a badass all you want. Say that. Say, say it around somebody. Say it around somebody black. I'm just curious. Just say, say it around somebody black that, that, that cares about their self-respect and dignity to let another white man say that to them in front of them. You know better. You know better. And, and, and y'all all know better. And, and there's no excuse. You, there's no excuse. Don't tell me that other black people are using it. You don't get to fucking use it. No one cares. And the fact that in 2022, we're out here trying to act like people that said it in 2016 didn't know it was bad until now. What the fuck are you talking about? Your podcast has been out in the 2000s. We're in a millennium. There is no way that anybody would have been under any perception in the past 10 years that said nigga was not inappropriate. That was, that was not appropriate for white people to say. You knew it. You thought it was cute. You thought you was cool. And people thought you was cool for saying it. And you didn't think you was going to call you the fuck out. Now Spotify has taken 70 of your episodes that has had nigger in them. Because I'm going to be very clear. It didn't say the N-word. It said nigger, right? Not nigger, nigger. Neither way, okay? Even some of y'all that play with the word ninja. Just don't say it. You cannot make it cool. Stop it. I don't know what Spotify is going to do. They opened themselves up. They really have. And now they thought they could just, you know, focus the conversation on COVID. No, it's bigger than COVID. It's about this motherfucker. This man is a problem across the board. Race and COVID. And transphobia. And I, I, I know that, that shoe's going to fall eventually, right? Or the fact that he said going to a black neighborhood was like playing the apes. Dude, we caught you. Okay? Playing the apes and black people? You're making that connection. You think you're funny? Was that not about race? Was that out of context? What, 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 what was that about? Why playing the apes? The shoe's going to drop on Joe Rogan. Somebody got a video somewhere. They, they, like, there's more to the story. Because if you feel comfortable saying that on the podcast, I wonder what you're saying in your personal life. And to all the people that subscribe to this podcast and still want to act like he's doing something profound or radical, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. I, I just cannot. I cannot. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, people said, so as of right now, Joe Rogan and Spotify are yet to comment on why at least 70 of those episodes have been deleted. 
while he apologized for his use of a racial slur of, of saying nigger and comparing a visit to a black neighborhood to being the planet and being in the planet of the apes. Like, what do y'all do on Spotify? Bye. Period. Period. <laughs> Period. Period. Okay. So, as I get into other aspects, um, in wrapping up, oh, I think I am, but you never know. Uh, <laughs> this is a long ass episode, y'all. Y'all knew, listen, y'all knew this week was bound to come. This has been the wildest week for grifters, frauds, and blue, and purple, and blue vests. It has been the wildest week for grifters, frauds, and blue vests, period. I keep saying purple vest. I don't know why. Who's wearing purple around me? Oh, the color purple. Yes, Oprah. Contact the people. Fantasia is going to be silly. Taraji P. Henson is going to be Shug. Domingo Coleman is going to be Mr. And my girl, oh my goodness, Sophia is going to be, uh, being, is, oh my God, I cannot, oh my goodness. She deserves, you know, Danielle Brooks is going to be Sophia. And Oprah surprised her and told her that. Because Oprah originated the role of Sophia in The Color Purple, which got Oprah her first Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Yep. That was a film that won no Oscars, even though it was nominated for so many of them. But let, let, don't get me started. There was so much controversy with The Color Purple um, at the time. So much. But an iconic book, nonetheless. So... Updates about finances and elections. I'm going to go talk a little bit about this. I know there's more to dig into with this, but I want to take a little bit of time to talk about something. So state finances reports have come out for the state seats and the city council finances uh, for the races for mayor or the mayoral campaign races or finance reports. So let's start with the state finances. So as of right now, when we're talking about cash on hand, Fetterman has about 5.8 to 5. I think 5.3 or 5.8 million dollars. Um Connor Lem has 3 million. Um Val Arkush has about 1.2 million. And Malcolm Kenyatta has like $284,000. Yes, Fetterman has over 5 million dollars. Connor Lem has 3 million. Val Arkush has over a million and Malcolm Kenyatta has less than $300,000 in the bank. It's time to pack it up, kid. Pack it up. Pack it up, son. It's time to go. It's time to go. He won't go, though, because people are in his ear making him feel like he has a shot. But it's it's, it's a wrap. It's giving me very much it's a wrap. City Council. Rebecca Reinhart has, um, for when I'm talking about mayoral, I'm sorry, mayoral money raised. She has over $700,000. Which I know in order to run a mayoral race, you need to get at least a million. Everybody said that to be competitive to win, you need to get that one million. She's close to it, though. She's very close. Um, Gim has over 300000 Sherelle Park has over 200000 Dom has around two, over 200000 Um, And that's about it for the major players. But 
We have not seen any money from Jeff Brown, but a pack that he might be affiliated with or a group that he might be affiliated with has over $900,000 has been raised over some time. Now, they don't know where that money's headed to, but it's affiliated with Jeff Brown. And so people are suspecting that Jeff Brown, even though there was no financial reports directly co- collected to him, that they're saying that this money connected to this other group could be related to him and that he's got some heavy money. But as of right now, based on the money we do see, Rebecca Reinhart is stacked right now with 700000 which is more than Malcolm Kenyatta, and she's running for mayor, not U.S. Senate. So I don't know what Malcolm is doing, bless his heart, but if everybody that's the top tier going against you have at least a million in the bank and you have a little over a quarter million dollars, this is not a good look. That's money that you can use to run for your state race. But like I said before, politics. So in other news, Kanye and Kim are fighting on Twitter this time because he's complaining about Kim. Listen to my voice because this is exactly that. Kanye is mad at Kim because she on Instagram has been using her daughter to do TikTok videos and he is upset because that is happening. And I don't know why because like both of them are overexposed and he was putting his kid in the spotlight but somehow he's upset about Instagram and TikTok. But he's expressing his business on TikTok and Kim is too. And they're upset with each other. And yeah. Like, I don't get them. Like, both of them can just fuck off. All right. So there we go to Rihanna. Rihanna is pregnant. It's true. You all know I was not trying to hear it. She is pregnant by a man who does not really want dark-skinned women wearing red lipstick which is problematic. Maybe he's had a conversation with her about that. And maybe he's changed his ideas. We got to find out by asking him the question, you know, who's going to interview him and ask him that question. I just, he's dark skinned. I don't get anyway. Um, colorism is a bitch. Um, so yeah, she's pregnant. She released the pictures. She's pregnant, pregnant. She's prego. And I know for a long time there was rumors, but I tell people I was not going to believe those rumors because there's many times where, you know, Rihanna has put on some weight and that's fine. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, I don't know why there's shame. Like, the girl is beautiful and she's been beautiful in all of her shapes and her sizes. I don't know why there's like this thing. But every time she would appear in photos to have gained weight, everybody assumed she was pregnant. So I just did not want to fall into that trap of assuming that. Like, I know with Beyonce, that was always pregnancy rumors. Like, y'all don't believe that, yeah, celebrities can eat too. People like to eat. People don't always have to be thin, like, in order to be not pregnant. It's just very fat phobic, and I just really hate that. And we're not going to entertain what the fuck fit phobic means, because that's full of shit too. Um, what the fuck is fit phobic? Get the fuck out of here. Um, so, and other things, I read this really great piece in New York Times, um, about the abuse of the word trauma and love bombing, which I never knew nothing about. Like I wasn't in love bombing culture, but like all these terms are being used out of proportion and being over-dramatized. I agree. Everything is not trauma. I mean, everything is not traumatic, right? Like I think sometimes people have used that word or the word abuser. People have used the word abuser aggressively. Um, People have just taken out these words and have made them 
mischaracterizing. Like everyone's not a narcissist just because you don't like them. True. Like there's a lot of people I don't like. I don't think they're narcissists though. I think the guy who broke up with you is not an abuser. The person that, well, let's be clear about what I mean by that. Like if you met somebody, the date was bad, y'all stop talking, that doesn't automatically mean they're an abuser. If the person that want to commit to you doesn't mean they're automatically a narcissist. Like we just jump from zero to 100 a lot of times in the rhetoric we use. And as someone who is a writer and, you know, I am a wordsmith and I do look at words and I do, you know, think about what I say and how I describe it. I think some people just take these words out of hand. So a guy who, you know, dated somebody, broke up with them because he was not committal and then did the same thing to another person does not make them a predator. Are they corny? Maybe. Are they whack? Sure. But predator, I think, is a little extreme. But we use these words, right? Like, I know people say, I was in an abusive relationship with my partner. Like, if you said that, like, five years ago, six years ago, that meant that this person was verbally abusive and physically abusive. Like, there was there was that. But, you know, this logic around emotional abuse, I'm not saying emotional abuse is not real. I just think that sometimes people take a lot of words and describe them as one thing when they don't carry that level of weight. So, let's say, for example, I had an argument with a friend. Does that mean that because we had an argument and disagreement that then all of a sudden I'm toxic because we had an argument? Does that then all of a sudden mean all of a sudden mean that I'm abusive because we had an argument and disagreement about something? I just think sometimes people have taken these things out of context, out of expressions and upset. Being upset is a human trait. If everybody's having a traumatic experience, is everybody is anybody having it? Is the question when you start using these terms. And I think that what has happened is that when this language is being normalized in such an extreme way, every then it almost takes the power out of the word or the context. And so that's what's happening now, is that I've seen someone say, which was crazy, that, oh, I was in an abusive household. My parents were just so abusive. And I could say to them, well, what was that? Well, 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 what was that like? Like, this is a concern. Well, you know, I would ask them if I could get tickets to go to this concert and they just don't listen to me. And every time they gaslight me, I'm like, gaslight you? How they gaslight you? Because they tell me I didn't do my my chores. There's something I didn't do my chores. So because I didn't do my chores, that therefore, you know, and this is a true story. I'm not going to tell you who told, well, when I went to see my brother, like my brother, he's now at Temple. But when he was graduating, I went down south. Like when I went to Houston or whatever, and we celebrated for his graduation party from high school. Some of his friends were there and they would talk about their parents. And I was listening to this kid, like he was just like his parents are abusive. I was like, yo, yo, they're abusive. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, are you okay? You know, I'm getting concerned. I got my 90s kid hat on. Like, when you, you know, I was born in the 90s, so I'm like, well, you're gonna wear abuse. You know, those are the that's what they used to make the TV shows about abuse. I'm not talking about the good times days where, you know, Janet was on there getting burned and stuff. I would say, you know, the other episodes where the kids, you know, in the 90s, those shows, like, I was born in 91, so, you know, you know, Sister, Sister, all those shows where there was those episodes where, or Moesha was a good example of kids who was in violent environments. There was some real shit going on, right? So, my 90s kid had his own, like, abusive, what's going on? He started explaining, he just said, like, my parents wouldn't, you know, get me, you know, I've been wanting to go to X, Y, and Z concert. They were just talking about something that happened a year ago. Because let me let me be clear. Because we're talking about Astral World. In Texas, they were still having concerts during the pandemic, y'all. Y'all know that. So apparently they want to go to Astral World because they're from Houston. Well, 
Good thing to find out the kid didn't go to Asheville. I think they're happy about that. We ain't forgot Travis Scott. Fuck you. Uh, but they apparently want to go to Asheville. The tickets were being sold around that time. Their parents wouldn't let them go. So they would say it was abusive because their parents knew they really wanted to go and they didn't get them a ticket. Okay. So the part was, he says, oh, you know, they were also gaslighting me. I said, oh my God, what, what you mean gaslighting? Said that the reason why they didn't get the tickets because they didn't do their chores and that had they done their chores, they would have been able to go and they was getting gaslighted by their parents. So like their parents was like holding it against them. I was like, wait a minute. No, little boy, let me explain something to you. I know you might think I'm an old head now because I'm 29. At the time I was 29, I wasn't 30 yet. I was like, let me explain something to you. Here's the cause and effect, kid. Your parents told you to do chores because you live in their house under their roof. You don't pay bills. And the least that your ass could do is go to school, graduate, and clean up after yourself. You didn't want to do the chores. That's a consequence. And life, a consequence is not abuse. A consequence is a, is a thing that happens that could be good or bad. Consequences are not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. They're a result of something, right? As a consequence for you not doing it, right? Not doing your chores. They told you, you cannot go to the concert. When they provide you the rationale for why you're not going to the concert, that wasn't gaslighting. That was them telling you what you did wrong that created this situation. What's missing in this conversation from you is self-acknowledgement and accountability for your actions. <laughs> but had I been maybe a, a Gen Zer? This was a, been a totally abusive relationship and gaslighting and the world sucks and my parents are toxic and my life is miserable. And if my parent would have, you know, tapped me and told me I was wrong, the tap on my back would have been an assault. Like, we gotta, we gotta chill, y'all. We gotta chill. I'm not telling people, like, there are real assaults happening in the world. There are real, there's real trauma happening. Let's understand that it's a disagreement. It's not trauma in this regard. Okay, so when they told you, you couldn't go to the concert, that was not them abusing you. That was them basically giving you a consequence for something you didn't do. Honestly, they can frame it on you. They can say that you're toxic. They can say you're toxic as fuck. I think you're a toxic ass child. No, I'm joking. But they can feel like the kid was a to was toxic, right? They can feel like the kid was is being manipulative. And they can call him a narcissist, which will be extreme, right? The reversal could be done to him based on how he's responding. That's all I'm saying. I feel like he's gaslighting his parents by convincing his parents that they're abusing him because of the fact that they won't let him go to the concert. You see what I'm saying? Words matter. <laughs> okay, speaking of words mattering or children mattering. So there was a debate on social media about Nick Cannon because I'm getting all this off my chest today. Nick Cannon has been in some 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 hot water because of the fact that apparently he's impregnating his eighth child, um, which he said that he's still celibate, but he found out the child, the mother of the child was pregnant. So therefore, that's why he decided to go celibate. And apparently he apologized to five of his baby mamas or, or five of the mothers of the kids, of his eight kids. It's a lot. Now, mind you, he didn't have eight different baby mamas. Some of these parents, these people are having twins. So that's why it's five mothers, even though it's eight kids. Because remember... Them babies, of course, from Mariah, um, those were two. She, he had twins. Those are those are Nick's kids. Nick got a lot of kids. Now, somebody was saying, like, is this wrong for Nick to do this? Yada, 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 yada. Here's what I'm going to say. When you are a man in your 40s, when you are a grown-ass man, um, you're an adult, right? 
And, and even I have to say this is that when you having that many kids and it's only one body, there's no way that you being able to afford to take care of your kids does not automatically make you a good father. If you define your fatherhood by the amount of money you have, that's a problem. That's a problem. Apparently, Nick Cannon apologized to the mother of his children days after Alyssa Scott spoke out about him expecting an eighth baby. He said, I know I could do better when dealing with delicate and sensitive discussions. It's, it's ridiculous because that's another time, amount of time that those other children, those seven children are not able to have because of the fact that you're out here. I mean, you're just raw dogging. Listen, okay. They keep talking about, pop listen, Nick Cannon has enough semen to repopulate the entire planet, it looks like. I don't know. He's not an ugly guy. He's cute. But this is not, what he's doing is not cute, right? Let's be clear. He's, it's not cute. And I think that the sad part is that everyone's been having this debate about money. Like, oh, Nick Cannon is worth millions of dollars. He is. He's got over $30 million a month. He got a lot of money. I keep trying to tell people that money does not replace time. And the best parents are the parents who have time to raise their children. If you don't have time and resources to raise your children, that becomes a problem. But time matters to a child. A child, you can buy a child a play car. You can have a fancy birthday party and post it on Instagram. Yes, I'm throwing shots at certain celebrities that do this shit. Throw a big crazy birthday party for a three-year-old that's not going to remember most of that shit so that you can look like a parent in front of everybody on social media. Go off. That, to me, is the problem. That, to me, is the problem. Is the fact that you're thinking that you could replace time with money. A child does not understand money. Right? Like, a child does not want to hear their parents say to them, Oh, your daddy loves you. He paid child support. Where the fuck is my dad? Is what these kids are probably thinking. And because Dick Cannon is out here in these streets, okay, which coined by Monique Judge... She's a journalist. She has been using Dick Cannon as her name on Twitter. It is hilarious. Shout out to Monique Judge. That is hilarious as fuck. Dick Cannon is out here populating. Your daddy doesn't have time because he's too busy making another child that he's not going to be able to have time to take care of because he ain't got time to take care of you. Having money is not enough. You're treating these kids like they're fucking investment fund. Like, I'm just going to repopulate the planet like they dogs and you can just throw out some treats and they're going to be fine. You shouldn't be raising pets like that. You should be raising any mammal like that. It's horrible. It's deplorable. And it's 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 the problem. And I think no one was talking about that though. The problem with you know the, the problem specifically with um the, the the real problem with this is that he doesn't have the time. And if for so long in society, we were projecting a narrative that as long as he got time to raise his kids, he got money to raise his kids, it's all good. He take care of all his kids. But to be honest, taking care of your kids is more than just putting money into them. It's actually giving them that time. And all of these mothers of these children are left with really doing it. But, you know, it takes two people to lay and make a baby, so I'm not acting like... One is worse than the other. I'm just saying that, you know, y'all, choose y'all partners wisely. Everybody should choose their partners wisely. Like, 
Be smart. And if there's a kid, what if you got ton of kids, you gotta that's a lot. I, I never forget Yana Van Sant is problematic in her own ways. But I never forget when she sat up and she gave this man all of these baby dolls. I don't know if y'all remember that. And told him to try to hold them. It he couldn't. He couldn't do it. It's not cute. It's not. And this whole logic of, oh, he has a life condition. So that's why he wants to keep a legacy. You ain't got to have eight kids to have a legacy. That's bullshit. So I'm just putting it out there. So wrapping up my two favorite shows. It's a lot going on. Next week is the Oscars. We're going to finally find out who's nominated for Academy Awards. I am super excited. You guys don't even understand. This season has been getting very spicy. The BAFTA nominations were nuts for those who are into award show watches. I don't know what's going to happen at the Oscars. I'm, I'm recording this before the nominations go out on Tuesday. But I just want to tell you all personally, like, I'm nervous, y'all. Like... Oh my goodness, I really don't want Gaga to get nominated for an Oscar, but it looks like she's going to get her second Oscar nomination for this stupid House of Gucci. I'm just so annoyed. And also, I'm shocked because it seems like Kristen Stewart may not get nominated for Best Actress, which will be the wildest snub ever. And that's going to be weird. Like, if Kristen Stewart does not get nominated for Best Actress, that's going to be so weird. Um, Gaga, what's going on? People know that Nicole Kidman is going to get nominated. People are 100% betting on that. But people are betting on Gaga getting nominated now. It's terrible. Um, I don't know what's going to get out for Best Picture. I hope House of Gucci doesn't. Like, it was not that good, y'all. The movie was not that good. And they should snub Gaga all the way. They really should. But I have a feeling they're, they're going to nominate her. We're wondering who else might come out the woodwork. Well, Lena Haim for Licorice Pizza, which I'm super excited for, happened. Well, Jennifer, Lo uh, Jennifer uh, Hudson surprises with the Respect nomination. Who knows? It's just, this, is, this is weird. Because normally, the predictions and things align. This year's been very dicey, so I'm on my pins and needles about that. Abbott Elementary, y'all, I've been in love with that show. I know I praise every week. If you have not watched it, please watch it. That principal on there is hilarious. I've been digging her up and looking looking her up. And she has a special on Netflix that's really funny as well. Um, I just am very excited about her. Uh, she's a very great comedian. Her name is Janelle James. And she's been, you know... Killing it for a while. She's a really great stand-up comedian. And she's just hilarious. And I just think she's great. And I hope she gets an Emmy nomination. And also Shirley Ralph, of course. And, 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 and you know, Miss Brunson. Incredible talent. All right. Power 2, Power Book 2 finale is coming on uh, this weekend. It's not out yet. Clearly, you know, when I record this podcast. But I am, like, who's going to die? Somebody's got to die. What's going to happen on this show? I am not ready. This The last two episodes of this Power show has had me gagging. Gagging. I've been gagging. I have been on the edge of my seat. I cannot wait to see what happens. Um, loving Hip Hop. I, I've been watching it. Dragging my feet. But this, this, this whole family vacation, it's like I need a regular Loving Hip Hop. Either LA needs to come back. Hollywood needs to come back. Or Atlanta or New York. I guess they're gonna kill it. You know, Miami just passed, but like I need a real love and hip hop. I just feel like their conflicts on this show has just been very like 
I'm holding on, but I'm just kind of like, okay, I need a little bit more substance. So I've been doing that. Zeus has been good. I've been watching Jabba, uh, Jocelyn's Cabaret, I, the new season. They're in Vegas. That song, Vegas, is hilarious. Um, but we're just going to see where that goes, too. But it's just been a lot. It's been funny, but a lot. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, the first week. More news to come. We're going to see what happens on the next episode. What happens next week? What's been going on in general? It's just been fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, all I can say is stay tuned. There are many surprises along the way. And until then, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Earnestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode, and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.